Don't put it in your pocket. Don't put it in your pocket. <laughs> We're talking No Country for Old Men and Anton Chigurh. Anton Chigurh. And the greatest villains of all time. <laughs> I've already done that laugh. <laughs> it was nice. It was nice. What is up, my nerds? Welcome inside Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know-It-All. I'm Jake. I'm Paul. Welcome inside our little cave, my peeps, my nerds, my geeks, my weirdos. Oh, let, let's, they all adore let's me. Let's get it moving. <laughs> Paul, <laughs> Paul keep it moving, buddy. <laughs> quit, uh, quit sidetracking us. But uh, we've got, you know what, Paul? I like this little cave. I like to let people know that we sit inside a little well, cave. Well, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a, a literal little cave. cave. Speaking of caves, Paul, I saw Logan Lucky. Oh, did you? Yeah. those. Are, some of you might remember I had this on my list of most anticipated move, movies yeah. for the second half of 2017. Yeah, you were looking looking forward to it. And, I, and actually, I was sort of scoffing until you sort of told me a little bit more about it. Yeah. Pretty good little movie, eh? Yeah, and I, I really liked it. I will say, sort of like The Defenders, which we talked about on episode 15 of our little show here, uh, I was disappointed with the ending of Logan Lucky. That kind of ruined it for me. I thought, you know, Soderbergh, he did the Oceans movies. He knows how to, like, punch us at the end with the twist. I didn't think he punched the twist very well. You know... It was kind of confusing and muddled. Jake, I'm, I won't spoil it for people, but come on, Stephen. Come on, Stephen. I'm beginning to think that you just sort of fall asleep <laughs> during <laughs> during these movies, television series. Uh, yeah, just pass no. out by the end? Did you finish The Defenders? No, we'll wait for that. We'll wait and talk we'll about that another time? Yes. Did you finish it, though? We'll, I need to know. We'll wait. No, I didn't finish Okay, it. all right. So but we'll, I'm pretty close. That's why we'll wait. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we're not talking about Logan Lucky today, though. I just had to let you guys know that uh, I did see it. And it was a good – it was a good – it wasn't a bad movie. It was actually a good movie. I was really enjoying it until I thought the ending was a little muddled. So if, as long as you guys enjoy muddled endings <laughs> – <laughs> Because <laughs> my, my opinion is definitive. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, you are the know-it-all. I here. am the know-it-all. Uh, but today, actually, we're continuing with our backlist hall of shame. I picked for Paul last episode. Yes, you did. And uh, he had to watch No Country for Old Men. So. Yes. I have never seen No Country for Old Men until this weekend. And... Uh, Wow. That's what <laughs> That's I all you guys get until you listen to the rest of the show. <laughs> <laughs> and later on, we're actually, because of Anton Chigurh. Anton Chigurh. The villain inside No Country for Old Men. We had to talk about our favorite villains ever. Who are the baddest of the baddies. And so we're going to be talking about those after we talk about No Country for Old Men. And we're going to also be talking about whitewashing <laughs> at the very end of the show. So if you like talking about whitewashing... You're going to love the end of the show. Stay tuned. But, but, but for now, <laughs> it's time for the Backlist Hall of Shame. Welcome inside the Backlist Hall of Shame, where Paul and I have to eat crow and finally watch the famous movies that we've been ignoring all these years. That was a nice introduction. You just did that right off the top of your head. Right off the top of my head, I'm just like impressed. I do everything. <laughs> everything. Literally everything. Uh, we started off with Singing in the Rain. Yes. You guys can go back and check that out. A very worthy start. I had never seen it. Paul made me watch it. I don't regret it. 
<laughs> that's the that's Reader's Digest version. I had actually a lot more thoughts about it. Yeah. Including some controversial thoughts. So yeah. Well, be sure your, to, yeah. you know, after this episode's done, <laughs> click back and listen to that one if you haven't. Yeah. All your thoughts are pretty controversial. But then, you know, it was so relentlessly optimistic. Yes. Like syrupy sweet. Yes. Singing in the rain is. So you opted to go in the exact opposite direction. <laughs> it's like, I optimism. need to punish Paul for this. Oh, my For goodness. his sin of optimism. <laughs> yeah. Forget happiness. Forget joy. Let's just go straight for nihilism. Yeah. And no that is country for old no men. country for old men. Man, I tell you what. This is... I have seen a lot of Coen Brothers movies over the year, and this is by far the darkest Mm -hmm. that I have seen. And that is not to say that I didn't appreciate it, because I think that um, particularly the first hour, I thought the first hour was brilliant. I thought that – and and let me me just spoil the whole thing in terms of just my reaction to it. I thought it was a very good movie, but it is not my type of movie. Um, And – I really enjoyed the movie through the first hour because even though it was extraordinarily violent, I really appreciated the sort of cat and mouse and mouse type of thing that's, that was going on where you have Anton Chigurh stalking Llewellyn Moss and the Tommy Lee Jones character stalking Anton and the whole vibe of it all. There were some really incredibly suspenseful scenes that I thought rivaled Hitchcock, actually. Yeah. You know, yeah, I really appreciated the um, the scene where they're pushing the, the money, the, the money in the, the air vent in right, the hotel. Right, the briefcase. Yeah, yeah, the briefcase. And the, I thought that that was brilliantly done. And, and you see just sort of the thought process that goes through both Llewellyn Moss, who you don't necessarily expect is going to be a brilliant strategist. Right. What, what happens is Llewellyn Seems Moss. Seems kind of simple. Llewellyn Moss discovers discovers this drug deal gone wrong, finds all these people dead, but also finds a big satchel of money. He takes the money, and then that's where his problems begin. It's not there, though. See, I'll just I'll interject shortly. I get so mad about the fact his problems didn't begin when he took the money. His problems begin because he goes back. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> That is true, isn't it? When he tries to bring, there's a guy who he has a kind dying. heart. Yeah, yeah he, the guy is dying. He asks for water. Um, Luella Moss leaves him, which I thought was really rude. And then he has a second thought, like while he's in the while he's sleeping, yeah, he, like, he gets up and he says, oh, "I'm going to do something really stupid." And and sure enough, it is. Really stupid. He takes this bottle of water and and tries to to bring it to the guy, who of course is dead by then. Um, but as that is happening, Anton Chigurh, the terrible killer who carries around this weird blow gun it's like type an oxygen of, tank yeah, that's connected to this like metal rod yeah. that's pressurized. Yeah, sort of like, think about, for those of you that haven't seen the movie, think about, you know when you fill up your tire, yeah. your bike tire, yeah. or even your regular tire, with, and there's that little gauge that shoots out because mm. of the air pressure? Think about that except metal shooting as fast as a bullet. Yeah, yeah, into it's, people's brains. It's a terrible, if if unwieldy weapon, and uh, so he begins to stalk Llewellyn Moss throughout the deserts of, of Texas. Yeah. And the Tommy Lee Jones character—I don't remember his name—but he's he plays Ed a sheriff. Tom, Sheriff Ed Tom. He plays a sheriff, obviously, and he is starting to discover all these dead bodies around Texas, and and so he starts stalking them both. And and one of the things that I really appreciated about the the early parts of this movie was just how cleverly the characters 
tried to escape, how cleverly they tried to stalk. Um, and I thought the scene in one of the – there's a Texas hotel mm-hmm. that the, really about the only time when we see Moss and Chigurh close in proximity to one another actually um, – there's an incredibly suspenseful scene where he, Moss, is waiting in a hotel room for Shigur to come, and it's just, it's brilliantly done. It is totally brilliantly done. But as the movie goes on, the nihilism of it, the uh, fatalism of it, really wears on you. This is not to say that it's not a well-crafted movie, but it's just this pervasive attitude that nothing really matters, that goodness doesn't really matter, um, that the fate of the world is really out of our hands. That's one thing about about Coen Brothers movies often is that you have the sense that, that all humanity are, are essentially these insects and the world around them is ready to stomp on them at any time and there's nothing they can do about it. Right. And this movie is probably the the quintessential example of that. And for me, being the singing in the rain type of guy that I am, <laughs> that's a little bit hard to deal with toward the end. It's, yeah. it's not – I will say that I really appreciated this movie, and I'm very glad that I watched it. And the accolades that it has gotten, I think it mostly deserved. But it's not a movie that I'm going to be watching again most likely. Yeah. It's not, it's not casual fare for sure. No. And the interesting thing for me with No Country for Old Men, I've seen it twice now. I watched it in theaters back in the day, randomly. Usually Paul sees stuff in theaters <laughs> since it's his job. And since I see stuff on video because I'm cheap. But in this case, like I went and saw it in theaters with friends. And, man, it, it is so exhausting as a movie by the end because and and what makes it interesting in that exhausting pessimistic nihilistic worldview the thing that's interesting for me is i like it so much the movie overall so much more than fargo you know which is another classic coen brother movie and fargo actually at least gives you one thread of decency and hope and light in that movie through the uh the character played by oh what's her name i'm blanking on her name yeah i know who you're talking about dang it yeah. But she plays Frances the, McCormick? Yes, uh, McDormand. Yes. And and her husband. And there's just this little thread of hope yeah. in, their, in their relationship. They're really and, good people. And, yeah, the thing about Fargo is that she actually catches the bad guy. Yeah. And the Tommy Lee Jones character, spoiler alert, doesn't. You know, and I think that, that there's a little bit of hopelessness toward that, yeah. right? Like he doesn't catch the bad guy and he's left – Thinking he starts and is left in the same exact place. Like what? What are? What is a man supposed to do in this world? Yeah. What's the point? Like, is it just to get to another place? Like, to just to die and see what else is there? I mean, that's essentially how the movie kind of leaves it. Yeah. Like, is it our fate just to die and find the people maybe in some sort of afterlife later? Is that the only point of life in the first place? Yeah. No, and, and actually this is something that I, I really want to ask you about because I, I read a commentary on the movie that that in some ways the, the Coen brothers' outlook in No Country for Old Men is very millennial. And you being a millennial, there, there's about a 20-year difference between you and me. I'm, I'm the old guy here. You're the young guy. Um, <laughs> you don't usually like to admit that. <laughs> it's true, though. And uh, they were saying that, that there tends to be a view among millennials that, that there really isn't a lot of hope in the world and, and that 
and that you know we're all just sort of hanging on by a thread and we have to find happiness wherever we can yeah. whereas old people like me they might be more inclined to look at, at a Tommy Lee Jones character and and um want there to be justice and hope in the world and believe that that's attainable if you work hard and and do all that kind of stuff is there merit to that at all i would actually disagree with that take overall because i think if you look at the stereotypes of millennials versus like there's actually two competing stereotypes there that you're talking about right and so it's not that i think it's untrue i just think like most stereotypes it's only true in certain niche right uh, segments just like is true for every generation. Right. Because on the flip side of that, you have in the millennial generation also a very strong sense of justice. I mean, the social justice warrior stereotype is broadly, you know, attributed to millennials. You know, that we believe we are able to bring justice to the world around us and that we're almost more optimistic and cer- certain ones of us are almost more optimistic than our gen- the generations before us that had to survive all this hard stuff and just think, man, I'm a cog in a machine. I work at a factory. I work at a corporation. I put my 50 years in. I get my gold watch and I die. And I served my part in society, whereas you have millennials that are like, no, I think actually I could do something different right. in this world and be that thread of hope in the world. So I don't fully agree with the take that says that the Coen brothers' outlook in – um, no in No Country for Old Men is millennial. Like right. I think, I think what we see in each and every generation is that you have people that I think it's more the nihilist worldview rather than a millennial worldview, mm-hmm. and we see that in every generation. There's mm-hmm. those people that have the optimism and those that don't. Those that see themselves as being able to affect change, and those that see everything as hopeless. And it's less of a generational thing and more of a worldview personality thing. Yeah, as yeah. I see it, because. Again, I, I look around me and my my millennial friends and being a millennial myself, and I see a lot of people thinking, you know what? I can make a difference here, and mm-hmm. I can be a thread of hope, and I can recognize and bring attention to light in the world around me. Yeah, yeah. No, I got that. I got that. One of the things that I thought was really interesting in, in No Country was it felt at times like there was a strength. The Coen brothers – do a lot of mulling about this idea of, of free will and predestination. Mm-hmm. And, and you have a lot of that going on within No Country with with um, with Anton Chigurh and his, his coin. It, my favorite scenes in the movie were really involving that coin. The scene oh, yeah. with, the, with the guy in the, in the truck stop was fantastic. The scene with uh, Llewellyn's wife oh, was such a really good, powerful. Such a good part. It was really good. And, and so you have the Coens really talking about a lot about these things. And, and so their, their eyes are always focused in on those big questions about what life means and do we have a purpose and all that kind of stuff. And one of the things that sort of interested me in No Country was it felt like this was really a godless world, but mm-hmm. in an intentionally godless world. Um, Whereas it felt like, and track with me here, see if you think that this is totally loony. But we talked earlier about um, how Llewellyn Moss finds this guy in a truck, and he's he's asking for water. And to me, I immediately remembered the Bible verse, you know, the the Bible story of the rich man and Lazarus yeah. asking for water. And it made me think that, that perhaps this 
this bleak Texas landscape was in a way a version of hell where God is absent. And you find sort of evidence of that all over the place in, in just the, the nihilism and the power of Anton Chigurh and his, his principled murderous ways, um, which I found really interesting. And then, and then it was sort of bookended at the very end when we see uh, the Tommy Lee Jones character saying that he always expected that somewhere along the way God was going to come into his life, yeah. and it never happened. And you get sort of the feeling that, that this is the world, this this world of no country for old men is is a world that God has deserted, and yeah. this is the result of it. Yep. No, I mean, I think <laughs> it's funny that you said that because that's what I was thinking um, a lot of time Watching this, now probably 10 years removed almost mm-hmm. from when I first saw it, and when I first watched it, kind of with less of a intentional eye and just mm-hmm. was watching it as a movie versus now when I was trying to apply a more critical eye and see like what things that I missed the first time is um, there is – there's an absolute – there's – in Christianity, of course, over a couple of hundred of years – there's been this development of this idea of hell as a fiery, you know, caricature of a place. Like we use it in pop culture to think of a man with little horns and a pitchfork and there's fire and you're tortured. But, you know, there's also this thread of Christianity that sees hell as the worst part of hell being worse than fire, worse than like the torment of physical pain is a separation of relationship from each other and from God. That And that's exactly what you get from Tommy Lee Jones character, somebody who's a good person, you know, by our, by our standards of if you do good things or if you do terrible things, are you a good person or bad person? He's a good person. He still feels like he's living in hell, this separation from a God, from purpose, from meaning. And you see that for each of these characters when, when they're whatever version of life they're living, it's all kind of very sad and it's very, pained and there's there's really nothing good about it like for any of them you know even when times are good you know Llewellyn's wife is like I just work at Walmart and deal with terrible people all day and so they're all living sort of this and and Llewellyn himself you know lived through the hell of Vietnam and trying to readjust from that and so it's all very that fatal it's almost like it's live die repeat in a in a in a setting that's very bleak and hopeless right and so since everybody's removed from hope, they're just doing whatever they can, yeah. right or wrong. And usually both right actions and wrong actions end up in things going poorly. Yeah. So kind of what do you do? Yeah. No, it's interesting. And it's it's interesting. Just as we were talking, I, I think that, that you have that that symbolism of just that dry, parched landscape and just the, the desire of the dying character for water. You do have... There's, I think there's almost a sense within this movie that water is a symbol of hope, but it's so rare in this. You see the, the water that is brought too late at the very beginning of the movie. You see the Rio Grande that is crossed, and, and, and Llewellyn thinks that he's crossing over that water into safety. Um, you have these elements where water sort of becomes this symbol of hope, but it's so rare in the parched landscape of Texas. And I think that that's where the Coen brothers sort of leave us, parched. Yeah, yeah I think what the Coen brothers do really well is, I mean, they're like, they're almost like classical authors that somehow found a way to translate the power and emotion that authors used to pour into text, mm-hmm. you know, hundreds 
for hundreds of years, they've found a way to do that on film. Yeah. Whether or not you agree with the messages they tell, they pack a lot of meaning into the visuals they use, into the settings they use, the characters, the dialogue that's there. Because this is a movie that doesn't even have a ton of dialogue. No, and it What's doesn't. there is very simple. Yeah. yeah. Like it's, the gas station very scene. Sparse. It's very sparse. Which is in it, like one of the top scenes of all time, in my mm-hmm. opinion. Like it, I knew what happened. I know what happens in that scene. And I'm still sitting there on the edge of my seat. And I've watched it on YouTube a couple of times in between just because it's so compelling. Yeah, yeah. And I think part of that, what you say about the Coens is really very true. This was based on a Cormac McCarthy novel. And that dude Cormac is dark. Mac- he is a dark writer. I have I have read a few of his books and man is he dark. But he, he's a brilliant writer as well. He fits very much in with this. And from what I understand, they didn't deviate very much from from what Cormac wrote. It was just pretty much straight from the page to the screen, and I think it really shows in, in the movies. <sighs> Nihilistic excellence. <laughs> uh, yeah, and so the content caveat with Paul and Jake <laughs> yes. it is really, really, really violent. It really is. violent. And it's such a – the violence is very interesting for me watching mm-hmm. it. The, you know, it, the other thing that you said earlier that stood out to me because I literally thought it as I was watching it the second time was the comparison to Hitchcock. Like there are a few times where it's graphic, you know, where somebody gets something through the head or, you know, loses part of a limb or things like that. But most of the deaths appear happen off screen, except for a few rare exceptions. Yep. And he, they build so much tension off screen, like several times they go out of their way yeah. to to have a death occur off screen. Yeah. And then, you know, I won't give a spoiler for those of you that haven't seen it, but a very, like, key character doesn't even, not even off screen, like the entire scene of this character's demise is nowhere, like, yeah. to be found. Which you don't again, see what happens. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the powers of it. I've, I've seen some criticism of it, but that particular scene... Oh, I think it was great. ...emphasizes sort of the... Everything's meaningless. meaningless. Yeah, Absolutely. Exactly. Like, it didn't... You, uh, this character, you're like, they deserve to... To die on screen, <laughs> right, 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 right. But no, it, yeah. it doesn't matter who you are. It does. It's it all just kind of happens, and it doesn't happen the way you expect it. It yeah. doesn't happen at the hand of who you expect it, when you expect it, where you expect it. It's, it's very random. Yeah. It's like a coin flip. But you know what's more millennial, actually, and I'll we'll leave it at this before I ask you for your rating of this movie was the speech that Llewellyn Moss's. It's not even a speech, right? It's like two or three sentences, right? At the end, uh, or towards the end, that and again, I don't want to spoil it, but right. but her calling out of yeah. that fatalistic attitude yeah. in very like she does it in a paragraph, if that. Yeah. No. In, in essentially, what happens? Brilliant. Yeah. The the um, Anton. She encounters Anton. Some sometimes when he's about to kill a person or not kill a person, he flips a coin, and it is decided much like Two Face. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it decides the fate of a person. And um, the wife of Llewellyn, you know, the, Anton says, call it. And she says, no, it. I'm not going to call it. It's not about the coin. It's about you. Yep. You make this choice, which I thought was brilliant. It was, it was really powerful to me, just the idea that it's not fate that decides what happens. It's, it's us. Yeah, we it's made the us. decision. Yeah. Yep. Well, Paul? On a scale of 1 to 10, what would you give No Country for Old Men? I'm not going to be nearly as stingy as you were on Singing in the Rain <laughs> because I am I am just a more generous person than you are. Oh, I, I would see. give this I would give this 
it's going to be lower than a lot of other people would. Sure. It won Academy Award for Best Picture. For me, it was not as good as the other big Best Picture contender of that year, which was There Will Be Blood. Oh, um, I like this way better than There Will Be Blood. But I know you've got kind of a Daniel Day-Lewis thing. <laughs> yeah. So um, I am going to give this an 8. All right. That's solid. That's solid. I mean, for as depressing a movie as it is, it would be easy not to give it that. Yeah. yeah. So, but, but then you see that silenced shotgun. Is that thing terrifying or what? Is that even real? Did you – like? We didn't even get to – we could spend a whole episode talking about the fact that he has this Anton Chigurh's silenced shotgun. That noise is freaky, is it not? It's a little freaky. Yeah. Now that we've thoroughly discussed No Country for Old Men and wiped that off Paul's backlist, Hall of Thank Shame. Thank goodness. <laughs> and it's time for Paul to pick off of my backlist so that I can, for the first time, for the last time, watch a movie that I've never seen. That's right. We've we've talked a little bit about how this movie was a little like Alfred Hitchcock. Right. And everybody, I think, should watch more Alfred Hitchcock. And so because of that... Prescription from Dr. Paul. <laughs> that's exactly right. Everybody should watch more Hitchcock. That's just a rule. Um, and I am going to give you what is widely considered to be Hitchcock's greatest movie. All right. Vertigo. Vertigo. It is a uh, well. I'm not going to even Don't tell spoil you much it, Paul. about it. Just tell the people that they can find it at a library near them, or find it at a library buy it from Amazon. Check it out, rent it, buy it. You should just buy it, actually, because <laughs> it's a really good, sort of freaky movie. Um, and yeah. we'll be talking about it on the next episode. That is correct. But before then, now it's time to rank the greatest, or at least our favorite. <laughs> Villains of all time in Rank Geeks. We are now going to be ranking our very favorite great, terrible, evil villains. Um, we just spent a lot of time talking about one who could definitely make one of our lists, if not both of them. Um, but you will you will just have to find out. So uh, you know the format. We uh, usually rank them top five for each of us, and then we come up with a definitive list at the end. The definitive fanboy and know-it-all top five rank geeks list of our favorite amazing, terrible villains. By this, I defined by the villains that just really are evil or yeah. like you know uh, but I, we'll explain our picks yeah 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 i no, won't explain it no, for and, paul and he I won't want, explain it for me i want to ask you what is what is your top five and what how did you rank these because there's a lot of different ways you could rank these right there are so and when you look online there's plenty of lists out there that are kind of all over the place right and i wanted to bring a little order to mine <laughs> for once <laughs> No, I always bring order. You just don't always agree with my order. All right. And so for me, you know, people are throwing aliens in there and people are throwing like monsters in there. Monsters doesn't work. Stuff like that. And so for me, when I'm looking at my favorite villains ever, what makes a favorite villain? I know that sounds like a, a, what's the word I'm looking for here? A non sequitur? Yeah. Oxymoron. Oxymoron. Something like that. Paul's going to know it all, not me. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um but what I what I what I'm lo- bleep, bleep, that's all, folks. What I'm looking for in my favorite villains is somebody that's you know got this sense of malevolence to them that's yeah. not too obvious, 
but that is impe- it's always this kind of sense of impending malevolence mm. wherever they go where they where they, it's like there's something about them that's magnetic and you, but they're terrifying you want to run away from them and yet you're mesmerized by them and so you know a for, little like me a little like Paul, yeah. To be honest, and so I, you know, I don't have all these freaky, creepy movie aliens in there or monsters. For me, these are a little bit more well-rounded villains, and right. that's what I brought to my like those that might be a little bit more every day. Oh, a little bit every day. Okay, yeah. so number what'd you do five for yours, for you? Paul? I'm, I'm gonna tell you're, you when I start. You're my gonna list. wait until yeah. you start your list. All right, so number five for me, I had a couple that were battling for this box. There's a lot of good ones out there. There's a lot of good ones. Yeah. But where I landed was uh, Tyler Durden from Fight Club. Mm. So this one's unique. Spoiler alert for those of you that haven't seen Fight Club. Like Fast me. forward like – oh, you haven't seen – No. That's on your list. Oh, my gosh. I forgot that that's on your <laughs> list. I should have added it so we could talk about this because it's kind of important for my – do you know – do you know I, why? I know Do you enough. know the conceit? I know enough. Like I'm not going to yeah. spoil it for you? You'll you'll spoil it a little bit for me. But I'll, I'll, I'll spoil live. it for I'll other people too? Yeah. yeah. All right. Skip forward a couple minutes if you haven't seen Fight Club like Paul. No, totally no, no, forgot no, no, that no, was no, on no, his no. backlist. <laughs> um, but Tyler Durden is real. He's he's a split personality of Edward Norton. And but you like they hide that so well. And so it's this villain that's been lurking inside of him the whole time. And that you think is just this terrible, evil, like no good buddy of his convincing him to do all these dangerous, illegal things. And yet it's his own psyche that's been convincing him of this. And the way it speaks into the way we can be the greatest villains to ourselves by the things we suppress, by the wounds that we carry and the way those can turn into these personalities, whether they manifest outwardly or whether they just remain in our own brains and our voices in our heads, whether we ever admit them or not, is kind of terrifying in a very intriguing way. And for that, and it's pl- Tyler Durden's played by Brad Pitt, people. So bonus points. It's hard. It's crazy that he's that low on my list. Come on, Brad Pitt. Oh, my goodness. So there you have it. Number five on my list of favorite movie villains ever, Tyler Durden from Fight Club. It's sort of ironic because originally I was thinking about putting Bill the Butcher, played by Daniel (laughs) Day-Lewis, as my number five. And he's not on there? I decided not to go that route. And um, this, like you say, this was really tricky. And one of the things that's really tempting when you make a list like this is throwing, like, all the big guns out. Right. I, I didn't want to necessarily say the Joker because that's just too easy for, you know, in, in some ways he's he's sort of like the, he's been in so many movies and he's, I mean, it's sort of a natural pick because he's such a compelling villain. Didn't want to do that, didn't want to do Darth Vader. So I, I tried to narrow it down to people who are just in one movie that I'm aware of. These are single standalone villains. Okay, interesting. So that's that was my criteria. And with that in mind, it threw off my a couple of really fantastic yeah. ones. But uh, with that in mind, my number five is a guy who you've never heard of. Okay. Wrote. Wrote. From Wait Until Dark. Never even heard of it. Yep. Wait Until Dark, 1967 movie starring Catherine Hepburn. Catherine Hepburn plays this – or no, excuse me, Audrey Hepburn. Audrey Hepburn. She plays uh, this blind woman who is essentially harassed – and nearly killed by 
a trio of terrible, terrible people, and Rote is the most terrible one of them all. Mm. It is it is one of the most gripping suspense movies of all time, and Rote is incredibly malevolent in his actions. So that's all I'm going to say about it, because really you should just go out and watch it. Interesting, interesting. All right. All right, so uh, number four on my list is Roy Batty. Roy Batty. Give you guys a second to see if you can remember what Roy Batty is from. For those of you that can't remember, like Paul, (laughs) he is a character played by Rutger Hauer in a movie by Ridley Scott called Blade Runner. Yeah, see, you know what? It's interesting that you you picked him because he – I thought about him. Yeah. He's really compelling. He really is. And with not a lot of screen time compared to some of the other villains – on my list like he he's not the main focal point and yet there's something so chilling about the calm of this android so roy batty is an android in this futuristic you know dark dank gritty world that ridley scott you know created out of a book by philip k dick and and he is his worldview the the speech that he gives in this final very tense showdown with harrison ford's character is like simultaneously simultaneously bone chilling and beautiful and like his appreciation of life even as he has no understanding of the true concept of what it means to live and have a soul is one is like one of the best speeches of all time and made even better that it like it doesn't just happen as this grand soliloquy it's in this cat and mouse game that he's in the middle of in a very tense like almost action like sequence and and he's and yet he's got this cold android-like sense to him. Rutger Hauer totally nailed that role. He totally nailed it. He was really compelling. I thought that he turned a corner at the end without giving too much away. Sure. He became less of a villain to me, and that's why I didn't Why you didn't ultimately put him on there. And that's, so, that's fair. That's fair, so, but he counted for me. <laughs> no, no, he's a good choice. Um, not as good as my number four, though. All right. Hans Gruber. Hans Gruber. I thought you weren't going for one of the big ones. Oh, you said it was a single movie. It's single movie. It is a single movie. Single All right. movie, Die Hard. Hans Gruber, played by Alan Rickman, one of the most compelling bad guys of all time, I think. He was uh, slimy, well-dressed, incredibly sneaky. Um, he was a perfect foil, I think, to Bruce Willis's hero, John McClane in, in Die Hard. And, and I think that, that one of the things that makes an action movie work is the quality of their villains. Yeah. And I think Die Hard works as well as it does because Hans Gruber is just hands down fantastic. What is it that makes him stand out to you? Because th- this one's an interesting one for me because I considered, you know, he's on the list of a lot of people's lists as right. like top of all time. And I've seen Die Hard. I like Die Hard. But he didn't – and I really like Alan Rickman. Yeah. Like he's played several of my favorite villain or villain type characters like the Sheriff of Nottingham, which yeah. is from not a great movie but is a pretty great villain. Yeah. Um but I really don't rem- – like Gruber didn't stick out to me when I watched it the first time. Yeah. And I don't know if I was just focusing on something else, but he stands out to so many other people, but he didn't to me. So what makes him such a great villain? A few things. Let me let me unpack these. First off, you have to remember that this movie – I don't re- remember exactly when it was made, late 80s, early 90s. But yeah. there were a certain number of tropes that you sort of expect in, in an action movie at the time. And for me, um, Alan Rickman's Hans Gruber sort of – 
exploded all those. He he snuck around them all. He was supposed to be this this terrible terrorist when in when in reality he was just a common crook with an uncommon love of extra zeros at the end of his halls. Mm. When he lined up, I I saw this as a young twenty something. He when he first. Um, starts talking with the people who he needs to get the the source code from. He's just talking with them. You can tell he's very well-dressed. He's very erudite. Um, And the guy who he's trying to get the codes from says, I can't give you the codes. You're just going to have to shoot me. And he does. Just caps him. He doesn't even care. He doesn't even care. And it just freaked me out. And then the other thing that really impressed me as I was watching this, was when he is actually caught by John Mc, John McClane, the hero. Um, he's trying to—I don't remember what he's trying to do—put to some some wires together so he can blow up the building like an evil person does. Right. And John McClane discovers him, the main bad guy of the whole thing, and all of a sudden Hans Gruber immediately switches into this scared American character where he's supposed to be this this slimy ger- German character. All of a sudden, he just starts acting as he's acting. And it's just, it's remarkable. It was a remarkable performance. I'm going to have to rewatch that one. Yeah, I, personally, I think he should have won the Oscar for uh, Best Supporting Actor that year. All right. There you go. All right, on to number three. For me, this I almost forgot about this one, which is crazy. Because for a long time, this would have been my number one. And it's Joaquin Phoenix as Commodus in Gladiator. Another Ridley Scott at four and three on my list. But man, is he like the slimiest ever. You hate this guy. You have like I hated Joaquin Phoenix as an actor for a long time. Because <laughs> that was like the first thing I ever saw him in was yeah. as Commodus in Gladiator. And he is so creepy and conniving and slimy and whiny and and devilish and violent like he somehow manages to like he might make my list of the most my most hated character yeah but he's even as evil as he is he's not cartoonish i mean right he's not like melodramatic either right 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 i mean it very opening scene our introduction to him is he essentially stabs his father right if i'm remembering the movie pretty close i mean it's it's right it's pretty close to the beginning yeah yeah and and but you see the pain on his face as he does it you know you you can see the pain and and regret almost on his face and yet he does it he's a terrible human being yeah yeah he i mean man if it's so hard to describe just how hateable he is he's really slimy it's just the worst (laughs) but also the best because he gives you such a great villain like you are all the more bought into what glad what the gladiator yeah maximus has to end up doing because of how awful and hateable this guy is yeah again without becoming a caricature or being melodramatic or being cartoonish like it, it's a really fine balance, but he nails it. Yeah, I, I have to say that's a fine choice. But again, it pales in comparison <laughs> to my number three, who is Doctor Zell. Doctor Zell from the Marathon Man. Ah, this is, is it a, safe? 
gonna have to. I'm gonna have, okay. Yeah. Marathon Man has come up a bunch of times. <laughs> Marathon Man is it. a great movie. Maybe, maybe that's the one we should choose for you. <laughs> um, yeah, he's played by Lawrence of Olivier. Mm. Um, Lawrence of Olivier. <laughs> Lawrence of Olivier was Lawrence of Stanton. <laughs> Olivier. Lawrence, Lawrence Olivier, famous, famous Shakespearean actor. Obviously, he plays alongside Dustin Hoffman, who I think is one of the best actors of his time. Um, and he is incredibly malicious, incredibly evil, and he plays a dentist, which just automatically sends shivers down half of our spines. I just got back from a dentist this morning, so I feel that pain. Just the idea of someone messing around in your mouth and and being and, evil while they do it. Yeah, well, evil dentists. It's, it's, it's an evil dentist. They're up there totally, with snake clowns. No, it is totally, totally evil. He he probes around to find the cavities and as he asks is it safe then he jams the <laughs> thing the needle right in the tooth and you just hear dustin hoffman scream in oh. agony and it's just Man, horrible i couldn't even stand it when tom when tom hanks had to knock his tooth out with an ice skate oh it's so painful it may be <laughs> it really when we talk about the the violence of no country for old men it's nothing compared to these dentist scenes in Marathon Man. <laughs> nothing. The evil dentist. Oh, my goodness. So that's number three. All right. Number two for me, ladies and gentlemen, he needs no introduction because we've talked about him a lot already. But it's Javier Bardem as Anton Chigurh in No Country for Old Men. Um, you know, we like I said, we talked a lot about him. If you're this far in, you've heard us <laughs> talk about how evil this dude is. But there's something about the way that he's played by Javier Bardem. The, the look in his eye, the incredible calm that he has that's really only broken, not by pain, not by sadness, not by – not even by anger. Really the only thing that breaks his calm is how aroused he can feel and seem about some of this violence and the fatal the, – the look on his face. Like when you know this movie's about to get crazy is in the very early moments when he chokes somebody out with his handcuffs and the camera gets you that shot of his face as he's getting the strangling this guy on the floor and the look of like arousal and insane pleasure that he has in his eye and the way he sighs after the the fight the struggle finally stops you're just like i'm terrified but yet you're so calm you're so chill and you're so relaxed like those are weird words to use about a villain but he carries that with him the rest of the time everything is so cold and calculated and yet there's this weird enjoyment of it yeah he is a really compelling villain and i think that he checks off to a t the boxes that you really wanted to check off yeah just sort of that that charisma that comes with this terrible terrible human being he the the thing that the words that kept coming into my brain when I when I thought about him as I was watching this movie is is an angel of death. Yeah. He absolutely. felt unstoppable and, and just the calmness that the thing that struck me more than the pleasure, I, I know the scene that you're talking about, but the scenes that struck me more was how when the blood starts seeping toward his boots he would just calmly yeah. prop his boots up so they wouldn't get dirty. He looks at his boots as he leaves the scene of a crime. He's very calm. Yep. And that's a frightening calmness when you consider what he does. Right. Because most of us and what we see in a lot of movies is people that are a little disturbed by the violence around, you know. And of all the villains that are not disturbed by violence, he's number one. <laughs> like there is nothing about him that is perturbed by explosions, by shotgun blasts, by stranglings. Yep. 
Yeah. yeah no, Terrifying. It's... But yet you can't take your eyes off of him. Yeah. I'll tell you another villain you cannot take your eyes off. All right. Number two for Paul. My number two. And if anyone is even more mesmerizing, someone who would creep you out even more if you saw him in your closet, uh-huh. Pennywise the Clown. Pennywise! Just saw it. He is a terrible, terrible villain. <laughs> a terrible, and, terrible villain. <laughs> no, and it's it's sort of interesting. I was just thinking about sort of your non-monster type of thing. And, and technically, Pennywise would qualify as a monster because he is not all that he seems, obviously. But, but because he um, seems to be a clown most of the time, he's one of the most compelling, freaky characters I have seen on screen in a long time. So you're talking about... Are you, you're not talking about like the original Pennywise. No, I, I, you're talking about 2017's Pennywise. 2017 okay. Pennywise that I just saw last week. Okay. Yes. It is he is a creepy villain and just for those who haven't seen it don't like me. first of all. <laughs> somebody today like somebody was trying to convince me that oh it's not really a horror movie. It's more like kind of like the Goonies. And it sort of is. It's the weird thing. It's Goonies <laughs> horror. But that's another conversation. That only um, checks one of my boxes. Goonies, yes. Horror, no. When you see Pennywise peering out from under the sewer grate, you know, oh, looking at gosh. this little kid with his eyes glowing and his rat teeth sort of being ratty-ish. And it's just, it is, he is super creepy and a terrible, terrible villain. Ugh. I don't want to know why. All right. Like Dr. Zell, I'm mildly interested. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. So with my number one, I, I actually sort of go against one of Paul's tenants, but that's all right. I wasn't playing by Paul's tenants. I was playing by mine. Tenants. There we go. I was saying tenants, which is correct. I always forget. It's tenants, right? Tenants. There we go. <laughs> Super important. Uh, but for me, it's... That's my most least important thing. <laughs> that's Paul's most least important thing. The difference between tenants and tenants. Um, but it's Heath Ledger as Joker in Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight. Like, I'm not just going to say the Joker overall because they're not all created equal. And Heath Ledger was proof of that. Like, this is a superhero movie that superhero movies hadn't been taken seriously, truly. Like, as far as being juggernauts of art and entertainment and even evil, even though superhero movies deal with evil all the time, front and center, we were kind of used to goofy, cheesy villains. Like, what? The most grounded villain we'd had in the superhero movie was probably either Doc Ock from Spider-Man 2 or Ian McKellen as Magneto in X-Men prior to this. And the Joker is so surreal as Heath Ledger plays him, and yet so terrifyingly real. You could see somebody being like this in real life, and you can't even figure out his backstory because you start to think, oh, he tells this little story, and this is why he is the way he is. And then he tells a different story, and then a different story. And who is this guy? What wounds have caused this type of rational psychosis? Like, he is so... my. I th- I don't know. My dad still might not have ever finished this movie because he was so <laughs> disturbed by how terrifying the Joker was as played by Heath Ledger. And I wrestled around with whether Anton Sugar being such a magnetic and creepy, cold and calculating villain, but the unhinged nature that Heath Ledger also brought to a very calculating 
terrifying villain that's magnetic as well put him over the top for me and is why I think he's the greatest movie villain of all time. Well, he was tossed off of my list because, of course, the Joker has appeared in many, many movies, but he was a fine selection. And I realized just as we were beginning this list that I had to kill my original number one. <laughs> Luckily, I had some backups. Why'd you have to kill your original number one? My original number one. Because it violated your tenets? It violated my tenets. <laughs> um, and it was Hannibal Lecter from uh, Silence of the Lambs. Yes. But I think that he is actually, I think even even the Anthony Hopkins of, of Hannibal Lecter has appeared in more than one movie. So my True. number one is Jack Torrance. Jack Torrance. From The Shining. Ugh. I hated that movie. But he's super creepy. Yeah, yeah. So And it kind of is like my first villain, in a way. Mm-hmm. Where it's the villain that could be in any of us. Well, I tell you what. One of the things that's interesting, this is, ironically, just a little bit of trivia for you, that really no one cares about, my top two movies are both Stephen King movies. Oh. But, uh, but yeah, Jack Torrance in the movie is much different than Jack Torrance in the original Stephen King book. Um, Jack in the book is, is much more, um, he wrestles with his fate. He is, I think you, most of you probably know that he and his family go to this isolated hotel in the Colorado. Stanley. He goes crazy as he's there. Trying to write a book. Exactly. That's why I'm worried about you, Paul. Well, I'm already halfway there. You live in Colorado. (laughs) You try to write books. All you need to do is go to a secluded hotel and murder people. So in the book, he's sort of this tortured soul who's fighting. He's fighting for his real soul, um, being pulled at once by his own humanity, but also being pulled by this hotel. In the movie, Stanley Kubrick's movie, he is just terrible all the way through but it was really powerful for me when you think about this villain and you see how this villain it's he's a small villain in that he's not terrorizing gotham yeah he's a small villain in that he's not terrorizing the world as we see in so many superhero movies he is terrorizing his wife and his child and because of that it really packs an emotional punch for me because you think about as dads how that how we're supposed to be the protector of the family and to see that subverted so horrifically and awfully um in in Jack Nicholson's Jack Torrance it's just it really is terrifying and i think it's it's his depiction of of villainy is one of the worst that i've ever seen mm. it's a strong case and a movie that i hated <laughs> So it's hard for me to argue. It's like, yeah, he was super creepy. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if we can really do a top ten or a top five list with this. It would be hard because there's just so many different factors uh, that you're trying to compare. And I think that's actually what makes this list kind of fun is yeah. that there's so many ways to look at what makes a villain truly villainous. Yeah. Is it and, and is it the grandeur of what they threaten or is it the closeness and the intimacy of what they threaten? Yeah. Like with Jack Torrance. Um, and, you know, interestingly enough, I don't think – Looking at our list, neither of us picked any outside of Joker that had this massive malevolent scheme. Right. Most no of Darth them, Vader. Yeah, there's no Darth Vader. There's no um, – There's Whatever. no uh, – what's the guy from – from good grief, the robot from – Ultron. Ultron, yeah. There's no Ultron who just wants to wipe out yeah. the puny humans or Zod or all these – 
aliens right. and robots that want to kill us all. They're all very intimate. Yeah, yeah. No, in their own way. And even the Joker is trying to get at Batman. Yeah. Even more so than Gotham. Yeah, no, I, I think it's it's really interesting. And, and one of the things that makes – this list is one of my favorites actually because every single person that you put on your list, there was not a one that I said, oh, that's ludicrous. Yeah. Except for maybe Brad Pitt. <laughs> that's the strongest pick I made. Even though it's a number five, like it is a solid number five. I know I said I waffled back and forth a lot, but Brad Pitt, he has his place on almost every list that I can make because he's so versatile, people. Oh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so all to say, like the 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 villainy is so subjective. There's different things to each of us that are more terrifying than others. The Shining was a creepy movie to me, but I wasn't terrified by Jack Torrance. But like No Country for Old Men, not a creepy movie to me, but I'm terrified by Anton Chigurh and his fatalistic, nihilistic worldview. Like that creeps me out. And so that just shows you the subjectivity of such a list. Yeah. So you know what, people? We promised you we're going to put these together. We're breaking that promise. <laughs> You put these lists together. You try to do it. You come through and you tell me how you would rank these. Actually, that's a good idea. Why don't you tell me how you guys would order our top ten list because this is hard. How am I supposed to well, decide so between many great villains. Yeah, Pennywise the Clown and Anton Chigurh or Commodus from Gladiator and Dr. Zell and Hans Gruber and Tyler Durden. Like, yeah. how, are you, how are you supposed to compare those? And I would like to hear from, from people I who we missed. Who did we miss? Because yeah. I think – we definitely left some big names off this list and small names. I'm sure you guys might list some that uh, I'm going to punch myself in the shoulder or gut or some other body part for forgetting. Yeah. No, I never forget. <laughs> You're I'm a know-it-all. I'm a know-it-all. All right. <laughs> and with that, we conclude Rank Geeks and move on into the most least important thing. Welcome inside the most least important thing, the part of the show that we end the show on every single time. It's how we do. It's how we roll, people. We take stuff that people aren't really talking about in Hollywood and we make a big deal out of it. Or we take the stuff that people are making a big deal out of and we make it seem kind of small. That's what we do inside the most least important thing and plenty of other things. This is kind of the Wild West, people. (laughs) Welcome inside our crazy brains. Paul, why don't you start us off today? All right, all right. I will start off with just a little bit of trivia for you. All right, lay it on me. Um, I don't know if you heard about this case of the selfie-taking monkey. <laughs> the case of the selfie? Sounds like a modern-day Generation Z Hardy Boys title. Yeah, it does, it does. But no, apparently this uh, this photographer had a camera swiped by a monkey temporarily, and the monkey... Oh, I did hear about this. Actually Continue. Took a took a shot of himself, of, of the monkey. It was a macaque monkey. I believe that's how you pronounce it. Um, <laughs> he, um, he took a little picture of himself smiling, or so it looked like. Um... He, the photographer, has apparently made a lot of money, and PETA, the people for the ethical treatment of animals, came in and said, no, that is not right, because, first of all, it's the image of this monkey that's being made millions off of. With no consent form signed. And he, the monkey is the photographer, too. And he's the photographer. So they were thinking that really the monkey should earn all, all the proceeds from this particular shot. Um... 
They just got out of court, and apparently <laughs> the monkey, from what I understand, did not show up. Okay. But he missed his day in court. He missed his day in court. He uh, Was his lawyer there? His lawyer was there. And Peter was representing him, and, and finally they apparently went, they settled out of court, apparently. And, and what they've decided is the photographer can keep 75% of the cash if they donate 25% to, you know, charities that protect macaques in indonesia <laughs> so so the monkey still doesn't get still anything doesn't get jack he doesn't even get a banana as far as we know out of this deal which i think is patently unfair yeah i think the most disappointing thing is that we didn't get a ruling yeah. i really wanted a ruling out of this case because i did hear about this yeah and there's so many things at play the monkey didn't sign a consent form yet he took the photograph and so he consented to the photograph, but he, did he consent to the distribution? No. Yeah. He, sure, he certainly – or at least we don't know yeah. because monkeys still can't talk, as at least as far as I last checked. But he was using the photographer's equipment and it's so a complicated he, didn't, case. He, didn't, he didn't have a rental permit. So like whatever's – it was the photographer's product, like his property, right? Yeah. You know what? I, I actually think that this would make I wanted a, a ruling. great subject for a, for a fictional – detective-like story. Like the Hardy Boys. Or Primate Suspect. There you go, Frank. Wasn't that the guy that wrote? Primate Suspect. Primate. I don't even get a laugh for that. No. Like, come on. I, I'm I'm of the generation that grew up with movies like MVP, Most Valuable Primate. Oh. We're like, we're fed up with these jokes about primate oh, just, stuff. Oh, just go on to your thing. You're gonna you're gonna <laughs> bring us out on a downer, I know. Yeah, we're gonna, I'm gonna take this down, people, because it's time to talk about whitewashing in Hollywood. This has been going on for a long time. This is not this isn't new. I get that. Uh but it has been in the news recently because an actor actually stepped out of a role. Ed Scrine, is that how you say his name? I don't know how you Screen, say it. Screen Scrine, Scrine, Scree Screen. Anyways, he stepped out of a Hellboy reboot because he found out through because of backlash that he was supposed to be the character he was supposed to be playing was Asian and Ed Screen is not Asian he's a white dude Caucasian as we would say in the politically correct realms of fanboy and know-it-all we're really not very politically correct but anyways so this is whitewashing's not a new problem uh, Mickey Rooney played an Asian landlord in one of the most famous movies of all time Breakfast that we all s- still say we love, even though I've never seen it, that everybody still talks highly of, even though it's super racist, <laughs> that Mickey Rooney's playing this Asian, stereotypical Asian landlord. Like, it, this has happened a lot in film. Uh, we had, just within the last couple of years, Emma Stone playing an Asian woman. <laughs> a red-headed, blue-eyed... Caucasian woman playing an Asian Pacific Islander. You know, so we do this a lot in American, in Hollywood. Uh, But how big of a problem is this? I think it is a problem, but do we think Hollywood's going to correct it? Like, do we think that Ed Scrine, like, stepping down from this role, now they're looking at casting Daniel Day Kim from Lost in his place is this the turn of the tide is hollywood going to now start to not whitewash there like they also did it with moana they didn't they except for one white guy they cast islanders and so is hollywood finally going to start learning its lesson because the finances are starting to not make sense or do the finances still make enough sense 
that they're going to kind of keep trying to do it unless they're forced not to? These are the questions I ask every day on my way, <laughs> on my way, on my way. Paul, what do you think? Has Hollywood learned its lesson on whitewashing? Are it's they a, finally going to get it right? You know, it's a complex question. And, and I, um, I would say yes. And I would also venture to say that I wonder if we might come to the point of overcorrection. Mm. Um, and the reason I these, – these thoughts aren't completely fully formed, so I'm hesitant to say them. But I was reading a story about the new Will and Grace reboot. Yeah. And I think that, that at the time, Will and Grace, which is, of course, about – you know, it, it was the first real huge show that that featured uh, gay people predominantly you know, on, yeah. on screen as the stars. But interestingly enough, in this age of of very where where a lot of this stuff is taken extremely seriously, they're they're saying that maybe Will and Grace may be a little bit backward. Like we're straight washing it. Exactly. The the guy who plays Will, I believe, is straight. Yeah. Should he be played by a gay person? Hmm. And so you have these elements that I think are, are really complex. Um, and I would agree with you. I think that whitewashing is a problem. It has historically been a problem. And yes, I do think that we are turning a corner but sometimes i think that in our rush to correct problems that should be corrected we sometimes lose sight of some of the nuances that are also in play and and i wonder if sometimes we might lose sight of of the idea that certain people can still play certain characters even if they don't necessarily fit into that character's box right does that make sense no it does yeah because i no i think the nuance in here is one, we are very, we've been very clear, both of us here, that whitewashing has been a problem. It's a problem when you start to have people mock other races. Well, and you have or, Mickey Rooney and, yeah, and Breakfast in, and Tiffany's. That's or shocking. Or inhabit these roles that could easily, that should be played by, you know, people that are, you know, we shouldn't slap blackface on somebody or pretend somebody's an Asian, make their eyes more narrow. Any stereotypes, that's negative stuff, right? But, but to your point, at what like where and this is not to say that we shouldn't correct at all but where does that line of correction stop because the interesting thing when it comes to acting is it's all lying it's all lying like you know people aren't doctors they play doctors people now i know and i am not saying it's the same it's not the same as having a non-doctor play a doctor is not the same as having a white guy play an asian guy or a black guy right not the same at all but it does start to, okay, are we straight washing? Are we this washing? Are we that washing? And the problem with it is is that we are not very good at nuanced conversations as a large collective group of people. We're a lot better at just reacting very volatile. Right. And this is this is an important issue. And so It is. And so we shouldn't shortchange it by just getting these passionate, right. angry debates but, and uh, not and, actually dealing with the underlying yeah. issues. Well, and it's a tricky thing because, because these should be, in some ways, passionate debates. We should oh, yeah. be upset at certain things that happen within the culture, particularly when, when it's shunting certain people out of, you know, when we're, when we're short-shrifting uh, a group of people for yep. completely unfair and, and uncalled-for reasons. But I do think that you're right. I think that sometimes there are – these issues can be really complex. Yep. And I think that, that sometimes it just helps to take a deep breath and – 
think about them, you yeah. know? And let's talk about it together so we come to something that actually addresses the root of the problem rather than the symptoms. Because if, if we're just constantly backlashing against the symptoms, we're probably going to get results that don't truly solve the problem. They're just going to be Band-Aids versus getting to the heart of the matter and doing things right you know, more frequently from the get-go and not just on the back end. Yeah. I, I just – I think that this – it sort of touches – this is sort of one of those issues and I know that we're dragging this on way longer <laughs> than it needs to be. But this is sort of one of those issues that sort of um, touches on a worrying – symptom I think of our culture and that we're we're really filled with rage and with anger and, yeah. and that type of thing. And I think that we're so eager to um lash out. And again there's that's not to say that there aren't things that really need to be corrected. Yeah, that, let's be passionate. Let's be passionate, but let's also Let's also be prudent within our passion. Yeah. And and that's sort of an oxymoron in itself. But but I do think that that sometimes we can um we can overreact. Yep. There you have it, folks. What? Getting heady. That's what you come here for, though. We don't shy away from the yeah, tough stuff. I don't know if they come from Even that. if we don't know. Even if we're still trying to figure it out, too. But at the end of the day, we're all God's children. Or we ought to be. And so let's work together on this stuff, right? Exactly. There you have it. No Country for Old Men. Great villains. Monkey taking Monkeys taking selfies. And whitewashing. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Jake. <laughs> uh, as always, be sure to let us know about how wrong we are, right we are, what the best and greatest villains of all time are by hitting us up on the Twitter. I'm at Jake underscore Roberson. I'm at AC Paul. Yeah, Paul is at AC Paul. Paul. And we've got a Facebook group too where you can come be silly with us and share your favorite memes and gifs and trailers and goofy videos about movies and TV shows and the like. We dig it. We even like books, people. We do like books. We're, we're kind of bookworms. So that's Facebook at Fan People, Pop Culture with Fan People and Know-It-Alls. And until next time, we're signing off. I'm Jake. I'm Paul. We'll catch you guys on the flip side. Bye. Bye.